0: Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. I have the absolute privilege to sit down with my good friend, Suzanne Devkota. Dr. Devkota is the director of the Human Microbiome Research Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A., An associate professor of medicine at UCLA, as well as an adjunct investigator at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Harvard Medical School. This woman is a very well established scientist. She's been studying the effects of diet on the gut microbiome and inflammatory diseases for the past 12 years, investigating dietary drivers of gut microbiome structure and function in the inflammatory bowel disease and metabolic disease space. She has no slouched publications. She's published in Nature, Science, and Cell. She's funded by the NIH. She completed her master's at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in Nutritional Sciences. Actually, this is where I met her. Her PhD in Molecular Metabolism and Nutrition at the University of Chicago, and her postdoctoral training at the Joslin Diabetes Center at Harvard. In today's episode... We talk about why fasting and other diets don't work for gut health. Do you really need dietary fiber? Why you should be or should not be worried about, quote, leaky gut? And are food additives really bad for you? Let's dive in. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is One Farm. They make a lot of great products. It is a farm-to-supplement company that is really designed to improve people's lives with whole organic ingredients that are sourced directly from the farmers that grow them. You will know where your product is grown, how it was grown, when it was grown, and most importantly, who grew it, Right now, they have a new product, and actually, it is a gut health product. I am highlighting gut health in this episode, and they have a bone broth that's been enhanced with botanicals and adaptogens to help support a healthy microbiome and support better gut health and you've learned all about why gut health is important which is one of the reasons why i've chosen this product it tastes great it's really well formulated from grass-fed organic beef it has garlic and onions that is grown organic and heirloom this month one farm is offering my listeners a free gut health superfood all you have to do is pay five dollars per shipping that is a free tub Go to onefarm.com, add the gut health superfood to your cart, use Lion, G-H, that's L-Y-O-N and G-H is for gut health to redeem. You can also click the link in the show notes. While you are there, you can check out some of their other amazing products. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, Element. LMNT, when we are talking about gut health, we're talking about nutrition and hydration. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix. And in fact, as we go into winter months, I may or may not have it in a hot glass of water. It has a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. If you are trying to keep your weight low, this is an amazing strategy to manage hunger. I think that this is amazing, especially if you are training hard and sauning a lot. There's no junk, no sugar, no coloring, and nothing artificial. It doesn't have any fillers, and it was formulated to help everybody. doesn't matter if you are keto, low-carb, high-carb, or paleo. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. Eight single serving packets. Great way to try all eight flavors. Get yours at drink element dot com slash doctor lion. Element offers no questions asked refund. Try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll give you your money back. Suzanne Devcota, thank you so much for being here. I am thrilled to have you, and people are going to get so much out of this. You are a, hold on, a gut microbiome researcher, but we've known each other for um, how long now?
1: <laughs> a while. We have a lot of overlapping you know, history,
0: and yeah, a isn't, while. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it really is. Um so you are you did your undergraduate at the University of Illinois mm-hmm. and you did a masters in Dr. Donald Lehman's lab mm-hmm. at the University of Illinois. Yep. Then did your PhD at the University of Chicago mm-hmm. which for people listening is one of the top programs and then you did a postdoc at Harvard mm-hmm. and now you are the head at Cedar Sinai of the Human Microbiome Research Institute. Correct. Yep. Wow. Gut health, microbiome, that is the hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse, yeah. And how long have you been involved in gut microbiome research?
1: Since about 2007. So, I don't know, fifth 15 years almost now,
0: which is scary to actually put <laughs> an accurate number on it. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on and talk to you about it, and the gut microbiome in general, is you have a very unique perspective. And in the medical community, and, and I think in the research community, there's the gut microbiome people, mm-hmm. and then there's the nutrition people. But very rarely is there an individual that interfaces the two. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that you've seen that. That that perspective of actual clinical knowledge and uh, academic knowledge of nutrition and the interface of the gut microbiome makes you a unicorn.
1: (laughs) Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I wish there were more nutrition, like nutrition scientists in microbiome research. Um, and because diet is so important to shaping the gut microbiome and in the microbiome field, we appreciate, like we embrace that, we appreciate, and we're trying to do nutrition research, sort of learning on the fly. Mm. And so nutrition folks, I mean, get into like hardcore microbiome sciences, like we need nutrition good nutrition people in that space.
0: (laughs) You hear you you heard it here. Yeah. If an individual is really interested in nutrition, do you think that the movement into gut microbiome is really the frontier?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think I mean there's still so much in nutrition to explore, right? That is independent of the gut microbiome. So that is, I think, kind of, I think diet and exercise research is having a renaissance right now. Um, And the microbiome is one piece of that that I think could fit nicely into nutrition research. But also for nutrition researchers who maybe want to break out and do something different, I think going into the microbiome space would be a great, like there's so many niches opportunities to fill in there um, where the contribution could be really unique. Mm. So both ways I think it could go. The obvious question is, what is the gut microbiome? So the gut microbiome, technically speaking, is all of the microorganisms in the, your GI tract. So it's not just bacteria. It's your fungi, um, your protozoa, parasites, all the organisms that are not you, you, um, and their gene content. So microbiome refers to like the gene content of all of those organisms. If we want to just refer to like the the names of the organisms, like this guy's here, this guy's here, that we usually say microbiota. Um, And so this this is this nomenclature nuance um, within the field, but microbiome is
0: really encompassing everything in your GI tract, not just the bacteria. Wow. And that gene content plays a role in human health.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have in in humans, we have 22,000 unique genes in the human genome, which is not that much, the microbiome has like three times that. Three to, I think, even more than that. I don't have my slides in front of me. But the genes are, fu- and microbes are all functional genes, and they're doing stuff and producing stuff within our gut. So, we you know what that is. We only know a small fraction. Like, we just know, for as much as you hear about microbiome research, what we actually know is still so small. And I, I we can go into why that is. Um, but we was just scratching the surface. So what we do know, from what we do know, we know that those bioactive components do affect numerous aspects of human health. And then if you consider the whole unknown fraction, I mean, my God, like what else could there be, you know, for health and disease? There's so much yet to understand.
0: So the gut microbiome is the bacteria, protozoas, fungi, and all of their all the bugs, all the other living things and their gene content and their gene content, yeah, whereas the microbiota is just the the name, the you're name. Just okay. identifying the organism. so what is it what does it do for us? And that, you know, when we think about the microbiome, is that just related to the gut?
1: No. So I mean, you're you have a skin microbiome. You have a nasal microbiome, an oral microbiome. Um, you have uh, a, a urogenital tract microbiome, so in, mostly vaginal is mostly studied, and then gut. So if what do all those things have in common, right? They tend to be moist mucosal surfaces. So your microbes love warmth and they love moisture. So you tend to have, like in terms of the skin microbiome, more microbes, you know, in the crook of your elbow, behind your knee, behind your ear, than you will just on your dry parts of your skin. So, you know, those are where microbes like to be, but those niches that I just talked about have been evolved since humans evolved on earth. We became, you know, air breathing humans. Um, So those are defined niches, but you know, people have, including our own lab, find bugs in areas that are not those that are outside the normal niches. And that's when things start to get really interesting. Okay,
0: what what do you guys do in your lab? We, we wait, wait. What don't you do? And by the way, I think my daughter has her own unique microbiome uh, behind her ears, so I'm gonna have to. We can talk swab to, it. Talk to the <laughs> nanny about that one. Um, you know,
1: the the lab um, has evolved over time. We uh, historically and and we still are interested in diet gut microbiome interactions. So, how do the foods we eat create? lead to pathogenic processes, usually related to chronic disease, either inflammatory or metabolic, through the gut microbiome. And then the flip side is, okay, if we know how diet can cause disease or influence disease through the microbiome, how can we then, you know reverse that or treat it? or how can we use diet beneficially for health? So I always say, you know, by studying disease populations, you're ignoring the huge, vast population of healthy people that will also benefit from that understanding. So we try to study both. Um, So diet microbiome is a big focus. Um, And then because of where we are in a hospital and we have access to patients and human specimens and it's just very easy to ask really interesting questions in human disease, we um, have a longstanding interest in chronic intestinal inflammation like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And so we get a lot of these patient samples really grateful for patients who wanna give up parts of their intestines when they have surgery. Um, and we're actually discovering and still learning that bacteria leave the gut pretty readily on, on in healthy people and in disease individuals, and they go to other sites in the body and can wreak havoc essentially. And we're interested in the adipose tissue, so fat tissue, um, wow. and how fat and the gut interact, kind of like a gut fat axis. And and we're finding that bacteria leave the gut and embed themselves in the fat, and it's associated with a very interesting phenomenon that causes the fat to grow in
0: chronic wow. inflammation. Um, we don't yet know- As in, when that. you say grow, you mean- would an individual if if i'm understanding correctly would they actually gain weight gain fat tissue or the fat in and of itself is expanding but the yeah. weight is still the same so we don't know i mean theoretically based on what
1: we see as to how the fat tissue is morphing essentially and growing in 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 this particular uh th- context of, of Crohn's disease, we also have a new project where we're, we are asking that question in obesity. Hmm. So in obese individuals um, who are undergoing bariatric surgery, gastric bypass, uh, we get parts of their intestines and their fat, and we're actually seeing if the same bacteria are in the fat of obese people in the same way that we see in, in Crohn's disease. Um, or is it disease-specific, really unique to mm. Crohn's patients? If it's true that this is also happening in obesity and we have sort of a mechanism for how bugs and fat and immune cells might be interacting to cause expansion, there could be another layer to to obesity.
0: Wow. Um, and, and we're trying to understand that better. And that is, that's really interesting beyond calories in calories out which obviously we all can agree you and i can agree that that plays a huge role there it sounds like there's other inputs that can actually not just affect that balance but actually affect the adipose tissue
1: yeah and and one of the st- distinctions we're making is visceral
0: versus subcutaneous adipose tissue and visceral fat for the listener is fat in the abdominal uh, abdominal region around organs and then subcutaneous fat is fat under the skin, everywhere else. Correct. And what about fat in the skeletal muscle? Has anyone ever looked at that? I like mean- Myosatosis? Yeah. It is such
1: metabolically an interesting question. It ha- I mean, as far as I know, has not been even touched in terms of the microbiome. So what might the role there mm. be? We don't currently see bugs in skeletal muscle. Probably great. Um but their metabolites can circulate, you know, so maybe there's some, you
0: know, uh, indirect effect there, maybe. Um, it's an interesting question. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it's the way of the future. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so in terms of the gut microbiome, you had mentioned, you're really interested in the nutritional aspects of the gut microbiome. What could a individual do at home to, you know, there's this term uh, leaky gut, gut health, well, before I think we even jump into that, can you define those for me and what your perspective that is?
1: Yeah, um, I can try. I <laughs> can try. Um, so much of the microbiome and how your gut, inter- your your own gut interacts with your microbiome is so personal. I mean, there's so many lifelong influences that determine. So gut health, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, there's no, I mean, there are some universally, we know that, okay, the absence of inflammation is healthy, right? But what is the normal homeostatic state? Um, You know, you, one of the things that we talk about are, okay, let's talk about bowel movements, right? Ideally, you have a bowel movement every single day, right? You want to keep things flowing through the gut. That's a marker of a healthy gut is, you know, you don't have what's called stasis, things just because there are the more your bugs kind of stay in one place, they will multiply and then that interacts mm. with your, your gut cells and can cause localized inflammation. So you wanna keep things moving for multiple reasons. Also, so you feel good, you don't feel bloated, all that sort of stuff. Um, things like um, you know s- s- stool consistency, we can talk about that. I mean, everyone frankly should look at their stool and it is an early indicator of many diseases if you have something off mm-hmm. there. Um, and you should talk to your doctor if you have really open conversations about bowel habits and all all the observations you make because there's, there's a growing body of evidence um, suggesting that so many um, early indications of even neurological diseases can manifest in the gut. And so, would that be like constipation? It can be something, yeah, or either or. Constipation can often be a sign of some nerve damage, right? Because you're not um, the motility aspect is not working properly, Um, and so there's there's a strong link between the gut and multiple you know organs, systems in the body, and therefore the diseases that affect those systems. So. The gut really is so important to really pay attention to, and you, you only you know your body, you know, um, and so you know when something's a little off. So gut health is really personal and it's unique to you, um, but those are some things that sort of are universal things you ideally want to strive for. Uh, leaky gut is uh, kind of a problematic term, but it's a real thing, So, but how it's being used is probably a little more loose than what it actually, like how you define it, right? So in the lab, how we define leaky gut, or we call it intestinal permeability, is the more you know what I feel comfortable describing it as. Um, your your gut is lined with cells, and those cells, um, when you uh, uh, have chronic inflammation, or if you shift your diet to one that might be um, more immunogenic. And the Western diet, which is a big umbrella, has been pointed to as an immunogenic diet that causes gut barrier problems. Um, With that, the, the junctions between the cells that hold them together become loose, leaky, okay? And bacteria themselves, bacterial products, food antigen products can pass through the, those cells into your bloodstream. You don't want that to happen. Typically, you don't want you don't want like your gut is the outside of your body. So, your mouth to your anus, that's outside. So, it can handle a whole bunch of foreign antigen pretty well, but but that barrier is there because the rest of your body can't. And so, you don't want that seeping out. And so that's leaky gut, you know, and we measure it through actually taking intestinal epithelial cells, you know, the cells that line the intestine and measuring those
0: genes. And if they are downregulated, that's usually a sign that there's a problem. Yeah. And could someone at home or with their doctor look at markers like zonulin for if an individual had leaky gut, which which you so beautifully explained. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it's the uh, intestinal lining, those tight, those tight, uh, junctions are coming apart yeah. and then things are getting in there and then getting back into the bloodstream yeah is that
1: so p and it's
0: you know there are many papers
1: trying to correlate zonulin or things like secretory iga that are often measured in tests gut health tests to the actual state of leakiness through the means that i've mm. just described um and some will show really tight correlation so You know, I think there could be something there. And then others show inconclusive. Interesting. And it really just depends on the context. So I don't think we should discount it. I think there could be utility to it. Um, But I just can't really confidently point to it being as a definitive
0: biomarker. So how does somebody know if they have leaky gut? (laughs) It's a good question. (laughs) I mean, how do we know if uh, we have intestinal permeability? Yeah. Leaky gut...
1: Tends to just not occur like spontaneously. There's there's no ston- there's no spontaneous leaky gut yeah. occurrence. As again. far as I know, that it's just something you have to do something to for that to happen. So if you know you eat a, a poor diet, okay, again, and that would be processed foods, uh, a lot of food additives, probably a high sugar, you know, high sugar diets. Um, do food additives affect the gut microbiome? Yeah. Certain, I mean, this is a really hot field right now, and certain ones have been pointed to, and there's some really interesting studies um, right now. It's like there's a study looking at one, you know, there's papers on a single food additive, and you string them all together, and maybe Can you, you share. share. Which is there one in particular? Um, one of the, so some of the ones that have been recently studied were I think polysorbate eighty is okay. often in products. Um, I think that I mean le- leaky gut permeability is, is one readout often for mm. these things. And they tend to lead to things that affect gut permeability. Um, the other thing they can often cause is a, a bloom or an overgrowth of certain bacteria that can cause problems.
0: The food additives can yeah. feed. Would, do you call them bad bacteria? Or are they yeah. just- Yeah, I mean,
1: one. Uh, f- we have various names for them, pathobionts, okay. you know. Um, but an example, there was a, a study- that came out looking at the food additive. I can't. It's not. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I just remember that it's in Taco Bell meat,
0: <laughs> and it actually nobody Chris, should be eating Taco Bell meat. <laughs> I'm just kidding because it's probably not meat. We don't even know. It's probably crickets. <laughs> um, it it causes like
1: a slight sweet flavor in 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 foods and it's in a lot of foods. They'll come to me. I'm sure as we're talking, but they found that um, it can cause a bloom of Clostridium
0: difficile, which. And people who are susceptible, you probably don't want. Nobody wants clostridium, that no one wants C. diff for anyone who is listening. C. diff is, if you've worked in a hospital, you know, You know there is the C. diff smell. It is dangerous. It is robust yeah. diarrhea. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's pretty,
1: pretty bad. Um, so there have been studies showing showing that where, you know, and there are, you know, some of these are a bit reductionist studies and of some course. of them are only in mice, but the data is compelling. And- there's enough sort of pieces of evidence that have kind of similar readouts showing that these things are, are making a difference, but you always got to look at the statistics and look at, you know, is the Delta really big or how much do you have to eat as a human to actually have that effect? You know, taking a mouse, you know, what affects right. a mouse and applying it to a human could be very different thing. So we had to like, we should take them as, you know, suggestive and paying attention to them and more work, more work needs to be done. But, um, uh, there's probably something something there
0: and i think what it one of the things that is really compelling is we talk a lot about especially in the nutrition space we talk a lot about macronutrients Mm -hmm. and then we talk about the processing of food whether our food is highly processed ultra processed very rarely do we then move to the food matrix Mm -hmm. and the forced food matrix of foods that don't exist in nature yeah right there is a huge gap between what you're talking about as a gut microbiome researcher and our perception of health and wellness that we don't even know what the food additives are doing. Mm -hmm. One of the other things, and I know that people are really wanting to know how they would be able to identify their own health, their own leaky gut. And uh, one of the things I get actually asked a lot is artificial sweeteners. Mm Which I think is would be in a line with food additives, but you know, yeah, yeah, it is technically sure. speaking. Yeah. We have aspartame. Do they even use saccharin anymore? I think rarely. <laughs> saccharin, Splenda, um, dimicini aspartame, yeah. probably uh, monk fruit, but that's not an artificial sweetener. So, how do artificial sweeteners? Do we know how they impact the gut microbiome? Oh, um, <laughs> just throwing it into the wall. I know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is a growing body of research looking, it's still under that, that banner of a food substitute, similar to food additive in the sense that these are non-natural things that have been created and put into food products. So very, again, hot area of research. Um, there, so m- my first, my first reaction is I don't believe they have. I the data doesn't convince me that they have a uh, overwhelming effect on on the gut microbiome um, in a detrimental way. Um, but what I always say is, no matter what we're talking about, is anything in excess will have an impact on your gut microbiome. Um, so. Sugar, for example, gets absorbed pretty high up in the GI tract. Usually, doesn't have an effect on your colonic bacteria. If you eat enough of it, it it you and exceeds the capacity for your body to digest it. Um, it will reach the colon. Your bugs will see it. So there's always a question of quantity. And I think. Um, I always, you know, encourage people to exercise a little bit of caution around black and white statements, and that, you know, one lit like one pack of Splenda in your coffee each day, is is very unlikely. Even without seeing the data, I can tell you, very unlikely to have an impact. Putting, you know, a tablespoon of heavy whipping cream in your coffee, even not going to have that much of an impact. But if you're putting you know, if you're eating, drinking 10 cans of Diet Coke a day, there's likely going to be maybe some effect because that is a lot of anything in your system. And that goes for any food. Um, and so it's everything in balance, right? And you shouldn't deprive yourself, but you shouldn't do anything in excess. Now, the one of the, the things I worry about in the messaging around artificial sweeteners and the gut microbiome is what's the alternative, right? So does that mean you should be going back to drinking normal Coke, right? Full sugar things again. What exactly is is the byproduct of, of that message? And I don't think that's the answer either. So if we cut it out completely. Maybe that's not easy for everybody. So we have to, you know, think about, um, as we sometimes demonize certain things, what the alternatives are,
0: and is that alternative better than the other? Is there a food or a food product you would never touch? <laughs> Um, she's not going to say bagel folks.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, you know, I, I will eat, you know, and I have eaten just about everything in various parts of the world. So uh, in terms of that, but what, you know, what do I choose to avoid? I'm generally low carb eater, you know, but that's not because of the microbiome. That's just because of, you know, other metabolic things. Um, But I do, you know, I, after a lot of this, the research has come out, um, I, I really do try to avoid as much processed food. It's impossible in this world, you know, what everything is processed to a degree, unless you're having a hunk of meat and a vegetable that you grew yourself. Um, so, but I try to limit the processed foods because I do think that chemicals, um, can get to your gut microbiome. You know, your body can absorb them in, in the same way, and so there are those effects. I think that are that are that are possible. Um, you know, and I and I do, and I try to I try to avoid uh, sugar as much as I can as well. But I don't, and I and I, I personally consume artificial sweeteners, and I have no qualms about it. But I do it in really in moderation, not not that much. What about colors? as a food additive. Um, It's interesting, I think there's been one paper on the red, the red color, um, and found some interesting, you know, but red, like the color, you'd think that they're inert, but one paper showing that there was an effect on the gut microbiome, and of course, showing detrimental effects. And I can't remember if they were looking at a metabolic or inflammatory disease, but whatever it was, it wasn't good. Um, And so you could extrapolate that to all the colors, you know, and say, we just don't know. We, you know, the micro. When all these food additives and preservatives were introduced, it was long before we were really studying the microbiome. Right. They've been in our food supply for so long.
0: Would um, you think that was from where during World War two times? Am some really of yeah, I mean, revolution? you have Spam. You know, you have.
1: You know, you have. Uh, there's a reason for nitrates and meat. You know, I would
0: avoid those, but not avoid meat, but avoid the, you know, the preservatives and almost. And anything. also the naturally occurring nitrates as well. Do you think that I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show and that's first form. That's 1 S T P H O R M. And today I want to highlight one of their products which I love and we use at home. And it is multi-fiber. So this is a multiple source fiber that is in a powder form and is really really great for not just digestion but again feeding the bugs of your gut microbiome which is all the rage and the topic of this conversation it's so valuable and really important most of us are not getting the appropriate amount of fiber on a daily basis. And that is why adding fiber to your diet in powder form is easy and just very, very helpful. Soluble fiber as part of a diet can reduce the risk of heart disease. It can also help with appetite and maintain blood sugar and manage hunger. Again, this is a great product, the multi-fiber fiber is amazing you can go to firstform.com slash dr lion d-r-l-y-o-n if you guys use the opti reds and greens you can mix it all together you can even add it to your protein if you want go to firstform.com slash dr lion free shipping they also have a money back guarantee I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is an amazing service. You know, we're talking all about gut health. And when you think about gut health, you do think about nutrient absorption. There are certain markers that have the potential to highlight how good your absorption is. For example, iron. Are you consuming enough iron? Are you actually absorbing it? One way to do this is to test and not guess. You can go to inside, like inside your body, tracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get 20% off. Very, very valuable to do this. Go to tracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off their entire store. If you care about health and well-being, then uh, I'm assuming that you do because you're listening to this podcast and that is the mission here. Is to provide you with transparent conversations. You have to know what you're working with, and that is why Inside Tracker is so valuable. For a limited time only, you'll get twenty percent off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. Lyon you know, and take care of yourself. You have to, at some point, be your own best friend and make sure that you are doing the things for yourself that you are doing for everybody else. Because without you, none of it matters. So take good care of yourself. You know, I don't, is there a difference? I guess there's a better question. Is there a difference for some of the things that are naturally occurring as a byproduct from um, curing and things of that nature versus...
1: It, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that. It might be a quantity hmm. thing, um, but I don't, I don't know. Chemical structures are chemical structures, right. right? So theoretically, they should be the same. And we like to think things from nature are better than things that are added later, but a chemical is a chemical. So um, I think it's a quantity question.
0: When you think about things that would totally wreck the gut microbiome, and again, we are talking about the bacteria, all the things and the, the genes, which is, I don't even, I'm curious as to how that even incorporates into our health and wellness. If you were to think about one, you know, the top three things that just would wreck your gut microbiome. Yeah, that sounds like it's processed foods. Yeah. What about alcohol?
1: (laughs) So Oh, my gosh, okay. I think I tried carefully here. Um, so alcohol is probably one of the most overlooked um, pieces of data in microbiome research. So when you do a, a, a study in humans, you take a survey like a people's life, you know. And what do you, do you smoke, do you drink, do you have family history, all that sort of stuff tends to go in like the basic information um, of a, when you're recruiting people. Um, but that information often doesn't get rolled into how we interpret the data. And so there was a paper that came out um, a year, two years ago from actually a colleague of mine who who is now at Cedars. And he published it in Nature, and it was a a computational study where he took a bunch of data sets and looked at the most determining lifestyle factors or like, you know, human factors that affect your gut microbiome composition and then what was actually reported in the papers. And when he did all this na- analysis, he found the mo- the biggest drivers of gut microbiome changes in composition were alcohol consumption and bowel frequency and consistency, which I talked about earlier. Um, and those are things that are often not reported in, even if you're not studying alcohol, it's not reported in the, in the data um, as a potential influencer or confounder. So, um, it's sort of, people have been talking about that and saying, okay, well, A, we probably need more alcohol studies to really understand that. And two, we need to start reporting and recording this data because it could affect what we're seeing. Um, so the short of it is we don't really know, but it seems to have some, uh, an, an influence. And I can't tell you if it's one type of alcohol versus another, which is mm-hmm. usually the next exciting question. Is, yep. um, and, you know, fermented versus, you know, degrees of fermentation, um, and. You know, wine and beers kind of we don't typically consider those fermented foods in the same way we do kimchi or sauerkraut or kombucha, but there are metabolites in those as well that could potentially be beneficial, polyphenols and things like that. So um we shouldn't ignore those. So maybe I would say that over mixed drinks, but that's for metabolic, you know sort of right. reasons. um
0: but there's just a lot we don't know yet. And, you know, by the way, we are drinking kombucha, aren't we?
1: We are drinking kombucha. Seasonal yes.
0: seasonal kombucha, yes. which um, I do want to talk about seasonal foods and how they affect the microbiome. Before that, though, what about fermented foods? Yeah, And you and I had a very interesting conversation in California. And I was asking you all about fermented foods. And and the prebi are the probiotics on the label, and you say Gabrielle, just it's not about the probiotics on the label; it's actually the metabolites mm-hmm. of the fermentation.
1: Yeah, yeah. I and th- this is still these are kind of emerging concepts. Um, so, a bottle of kombucha is a great example, and or many of these fermented foods will list the bugs right on the label that are in that that particular product. Um, And they're marketed often as probiotic drinks. And I think the vast majority of people kind of associate probiotics with good, like beneficial or at worst, I mean, we don't know, but at worst, they do nothing, um, but potentially beneficial. And what isn't often distinguished is sometimes those probiotics are just added after the fact they're not actually the bugs doing fermentation in the bottle because if you're pasteurized you kill all the bugs and you add bugs back oh, so it's it. kind of might be a little bit kind of like cheating mm. that being said doesn't matter because that fermented product is a product of a living process so fermentation creates some known primary chemicals that are really good for the body but there's a whole slew of thousands of other chemicals that they produce at different quantities that we know and have studied, we as scientists know and have studied as affecting multiple processes, like um, free, scavenging free radicals, you know, antioxidants. Um, there's things like serotonin, serotonin-like chemicals in them. Um, when you drink it, could I, I can't tell you how much of that gets out into the bloodstream. That was my next question. Yeah, I, could, okay. I don't know, I don't know, but- many of those can act at the level of gut for health and for improving things like we we're talking about leaky gut you know those can help keep the barrier you know uh, the junction closer you know closer together because
0: maybe. of the chemicals or because of something that it's doing within the uh, i don't know the environment of the other microbes it's direct effects
1: with the, I mean, it could be also influencing the microbial communities, but actual direct effects with your
0: intestinal lining. So the fermented foods don't actually, or do they actually affect the uh, gut microbiota? It sounds like that's not the primary driver. It sounds like the chemicals or the compounds that are made in the fermentation process Mm -hmm. are doing things like acting as an antioxidant also having some kind of or component this might be a huge jump of some kind of healing capacity towards that intestinal lining yeah am i am i hearing that right it's it's more of that direct effect Mm.
1: of the chemical and your body right not so much through influencing the
0: microbiome composition I, i think that that's fascinating and probably the opposite of what people are talking about.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's very different. But if you, so that's what is in the bottle, right? Now imagine if you could encourage all of that to be happening naturally all the time throughout the day in your gut because your bugs have that capacity to be like a bottle of kombucha, right? To be actively producing all those metabolites so you have a renewable source of it all the time and encouraging that, that those chemicals to be produced and to uh, improve your gut health or maintain your gut health. Um, and that's pretty, like, we talk about things like short chain fatty acids produced by gut bacteria. We know those improve that barrier, your intestinal barrier. But you have to feed your bugs in order to have that produced. Um, and what kind of foods would you? Primarily, these, yeah, so you it, feed that. Uh, fiber sources um, are the primary driver of like short chain fatty acid production, but other chemicals. Any kind of fiber? Um, there's fibers are are, are different and, and can be. Actually, more complex than we than we know. Um, we they're and they're defined in many different ways. But in in the microbiome field, we often talk about them in terms of fermentable versus non fermentable, and that refers to if you eat it, your your body can't do anything with it, but your bacteria mm-hmm. can defer- do the fermentation that you might get in your kimchi or sauerkraut, and then break it down and then create energy create metabolites that are beneficial for you non non fermentable fibers you tend to eat and they go through you and those are the ones that create bulk and promote that motility which is also equally important as i talked about earlier you want to have you know you want to have uh, flow daily through your intestines, and so you need the the bulking agents, and you need the microbial accessible fibers together. And likely blends are are the most important. One single fiber
0: probably isn't going to do the trick for for optimal metabolite production and just overall gut health. And translating that to the human diet, that would be varying your food content. Yeah, right. It wouldn't be just eating apples to get pectin over and over again. Correct. You want to have whatever you eat, apples or grapefruit. It's really varying that content. The fermentable items, is that, when you say that, what would an example of that be? Is it just kimchi and those kinds of actually fermented type products? Or is there other foods? So uh, in terms of
1: the fermented foods, uh, you! We always point to you know kimchi, uh, sauerkraut, kombucha, um, uh, uh, fermented dairies like kefir, People, which we eat all the time. Yeah, yep. yep. Um, all those are are great as well. Um, pickles, some are fermented, some are not. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a little bit of I think misunderstanding that uh, all pickles are fermented. That's not the case. You want to look for ones pickling is can just sometimes just be salt and vinegar, and and other times they actually have bacteria that help ferment and it creates they're actually really good taste it creates a good flavor but you want to look for that on label so pickling doesn't always mean fermented Mm. just want to make that disclaimer Um, so that's the fermented foods and there's others out there and people are getting really creative with fermentation um but um fermentable fibers um are one are fibers that you can so like things like your metamucil will be a bulking agent right and you take to help move things along um, microbial accessible um, fibers will be uh, the one we see often on labels is inulin. Inulin. Yep. Um, it's a great, great fermentable fiber. It also causes a lot of bloating in a subset of people, so not everyone can handle it. Uh, but there are other types of fermented fibers. You know, the um, we we're talking about we we're talking about pectin. We we're talking about the green green banana, the, um, the resistant starches.
0: Starch. All of that can be really beneficial as well. And should people if they were to think about proportions, should they include a resistant starch every day? I, I guess the, the bigger question is, how quickly can we influence the gut microbiome mm-hmm. in any kind of lasting way right. with the fermentable foods, with the inulin, with the cellulose? And you've done some very interesting work with some of these fibers, which uh, I, which we will definitely talk about in terms of being able to affect um nutrient deficiencies mm-hmm. and leveraging the gut microbiome yeah. to address nutrient deficiencies. Right. Yeah.
1: Um
0: yeah, so how long does it take to influence the gut microbiome in a meaningful way through diet? Through diet first.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um we have done some studies that w- we've looked at intermittent fasting and done, you know, putting food in, taking food out, and how you can affect gut microbiome composition over time. We've done this in mice and humans. Um, You can, like, uh, uh, if you withdraw food, let's just take the extreme case first, a fast, right? Within 18 to 24 hours, you can radically shift your microbiome. But as soon as you introduce your same diet back, it it rebounds. So on 24-hour scales, you you won't change, I mean, you can change, but it'll revert. So when you're talking about long lasting change, you need consistent food patterns. I mean, how long exactly? I think no one really knows the answer to that. When we do diet studies for us, the magic number is about three weeks, whether it's a mouse. So a mouse, it's about three weeks. A human, we always say six weeks for, Yeah, I Yeah, just thinking know. double that, yep. yeah. Um, which kind of makes make sense. Um, but I, you know, I have colleagues who I've sort of, they've been case studies for me where they internationally travel a lot, you know, pre-COVID especially. And they're really fascinated by their microbiome. So they would give me a stool sample before they went to- But let's to just reverber-
0: clarify, they wouldn't directly give you the no. stool
1: sample. They would leave it in like a baggie. And on, it and it all
0: lab. of her friends- uh, <laughs> Every time they go on an international flight. But yeah, yeah. Hey, it, fasc- it is fascinating. Um, no, so we get these magical
1: samples that just appear. I don't look at them. She doesn't know I, the name. I, I don't know who. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but before and after a trip, right? And so we have all these data points from different parts of the world. And I can sort of, so uh, after a
0: two-week trip to Korea, I can see meaningful changes, um, but it'll revert back. Meaningful, meaning you see an influx of good bacteria. How do you define meaningful? How do we think about it as it influences the health of the individual?
1: So, you know, the first thing we're looking at is just a shift
0: from before. What what is the delta? What is the difference from where they were to after the trend? And is it beneficial to go through periods of time where you shift your microbiome?
1: You know that's a really good question. I don't know. my My instincts would be no, unless unless you are you have issues, right, that you're trying to correct or fix. Or, um, but if you have an otherwise healthy microbiome, your bowel function is normal. Then there's, I would say, no. You don't want to create perturbations in your in your gut microbiome. It's not like doing a a cleanse, right? Um, you know, colonics and all that. Um, you know,
0: I, I don't think they're necessary, um, but they'd they, be helpful for those. Do you want to explain what a colonic is? <laughs> <laughs> you should explain what a colonic is. Darn it. <laughs> uh, look it
1: up. Yeah. Um, I think there are times when, I mean, yes, you might need one, but um, I think a um, uh, um, proactive shift in your microbiome is unnecessary if it is otherwise healthy. But what I, you know, there are times when I do think things go awry. So definitely during a lot of international travel, I think most people can attest to the fact that not only is there sleep off, which can affect the gut, by the way, um, your all your bowel movements are wonky. You know, when you travel and when you come back, it takes a while to get back
0: into a rhythm that is affecting your gut microbiome and vice versa. Can I stop you? Yeah. Um, is that Okay, so I guess the obvious question would be, um, is it related to the change in food or do they have their own circadian rhythm? Mm-hmm. Um, that might be a really not obvious question, but do they have their own circadian? And when I say do they, we're we're talking about the non-us yeah. living organisms yeah. <laughs> that are going along for the ride. Sure. Do they have their own circadian rhythm that changes? And does it, matter um, I, I guess the the question I'm really trying to ask is how is that environment mm-hmm. affecting the gut microbiome not even related to the food that we're eating because yeah. I mean what if let's say so I used to pack all my food with me mm-hmm. right and I would travel and even if I packed all my own food and didn't ingest anything outside of what I brought and what I normally ate mm-hmm. I still I would still not feel great yeah yeah Yeah, those are great. Like those are great observations. And yeah,
1: so the circadian microbiome um, axis and and the effects systemically is a really exciting and and hot area of of research right now. Um, And some things that have come out of studies um, that are compelling are um, over a twenty four hour period. So we have a light dark cycle as you, as
0: living as mammals. Well, I don't because I have a, a infant and I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> I get but, it. Yeah,
1: I get it. You'd actually be a great <laughs> case study yourself. Um, so your microbiome naturally goes through some populations will go up and down over a period of 24 hours. And it's a cycle that appears to be somewhat predictable. We don't know why that is, mm. but whether it's influenced by your body, putting some pressure on your microbiome to go up and down, or if the bugs just naturally have their own you know, cycle within. Do we know the how maze. long they
0: live for are
1: are they, bacteria? Yeah. I mean, they're turning over. They're, they're,
0: they're turning over constantly. Got it. You know, they're not very long lived at all. Um, so there's, but there's not norma in the, your gut. That's been,
1: no, that's been there for 80 years. Yeah. No, huge yeah. amounts of turnover, huge amounts of turnover. And, but they clonally expand. So they have clones, right? Mm-hmm. So they, the, the original founder bug may have been long gone, but exact replicates exist of them. So, um, and then there's been studies showing that, okay, if you give a a mouse antibiotics over, you know, the course of a week, they can lose their circadian rhythm Mm. in in certain organs. So we think of our sleep-wake cycle, your liver... Um, your, you know, t- has its own circadian rhythm that is separate from your brain. And apparently, you know, the gut microbes can regulate some of your, what's called your peripheral clock. Um, and that relates to diabetes and obesity and a study on, in terms of metabolic diseases. So it's, does the gut microbiome have their own circadian rhythm? It seems perhaps, we don't know what in the world that means or what's mm-hmm. chicken or the egg. But to your point, your your sense of, you know, when you travel a lot, um, food can help kind of reset, but it can't do all the work. Um, And so your biology and being off cycle, you will, you, I think has an important influence. Yeah.
0: Can the people that you live with influence your gut microbiome?
1: Yeah, uh, yes. (laughs) There's some really interesting data there too. Um, So the... Environmental microbiome is a whole area of research, um, and that's called the built microbiome. And that typically just refers to hard surfaces, right? So there's a hospital microbiome. So they take swabs of new hospitals and old hospitals and see how microbes live in the air. They live on the walls and they live around us in abundance. Um, And that goes for our bodies, right? So we have bugs, yes, in our GI tract, but we walk around with what's called like a microbial cloud around us, kind of like in Snoopy or Charlie Brown. Um, What is it? Is it pig pen? Pig pen. Yeah. Yeah. Pig pen. That's the image I often will use is that. So we all have kind of that. And it's a mix of just dust, clothes, particles, skin particles. um, When we breathe, it's just our unique aura. (laughs) And, um, People who cohabitate, and not just cohabitate, but so there is, okay, there is a study, which I like to refer to sometimes, where they surveyed um, married couples. And they looked at people who cohabitate who are not married, uh, people who cohabitate and are married and describe themselves as having a very close relationship related to intimacy, and married couples who maybe are not as intimate. Those who were married and closely intimate had very similar microbiomes to those who simply than those who just cohabitated and maybe we're not having as much physical mm. contact. So simply cohabitating can, um, can there, it's almost like a gradient, right? So you will share, you know, dishes, things, you know, you're in each other's space. It also depends on how big the space is. But if you are sleeping in the same bed, sharing a lot of the same things, um, you you will have a more similar microbiome than your neighbor next door and so on. To the point where, and this will be another topic I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll get into, with
0: fecal transplants. Um, and you have to explain what a, a fecal transplant is because it's, imp, uh, you know, I mean, I first heard about it a couple years ago. Yeah. And I, I would love for you just to take a minute and explain the concept of a fecal transplant. Sure. Well, it's
1: exactly like what it sounds like. <laughs> yes, it you,
0: is. You are... Um, taking healthy
1: stool from a healthy individual and um, you are being
0: reseated with their microbiome. Um, and is that done, uh, the fecal transplant, is it, it's encapsulated, isn't it? Or is there's it? Many,
1: there's many protocols yeah. depending on where you do it. There are capsules that um, do it. So, and it's like a 30 capsule dose um, or um, there's a two root introduction. So a nasogastric tube
0: and th- you know, through the anal route, so you get the top and the bottom. But it's washed, right? It's processed. Is it the fecal transplant is processed in some? Way?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's tested first okay. of all to make sure there's no communicable diseases, pathogens. Right. First of all, and then um, most of the time, um, and I'll get to that in a second, which is why I'm getting back to the, get back to the cohabitation part. Um, uh, so there's that, and then yes, it is prepped lightly, so. It's kind of spun down and kind of filtered to a degree, but the, it's, it's really interesting because people have tried to recreate create synthetic stools. So you don't have to actually use the real thing and they find it doesn't work as well as the real
0: stuff. So there's, you don't want to- Why would anyone ever do, why would some, why would an individual do a fecal transplant?
1: And, well, how the, <laughs> and how did we even get? It's not a hobby. It's not
0: a hobby. How did we even get here?
1: <laughs> I know. Well, it's been described in ancient Chinese medicine for centuries.
0: You know, and you can go. and There's been references. And is it for for youthfulness? Is it for the concept of taking a young, healthy? I mean, probably at the time they didn't even think about gut, right. but young, healthy, vibrant essence Mm -hmm. i don't know how to say it right and then transplanting that into an older individual
1: you know i I don't think in 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 the historical text that was the reason i think it was actually to treat ailments Hmm. likely of the gi tract Um, interesting idea (laughs) Uh, not (laughs) evidence-based i'm sorry (laughs) But, Um, but Today, in, in America, the reason it is used and quite actively in medical practice is for recurrent C. difficile infections. In fact, isn't that the only FDA approval for yeah. it? Yeah. It's, and Unfortunately, and, and because I actually think there's a lot of benefits. So if you go there in, in Australia, um, they have far less regulation. And, you know, I hope that continues because a lot of people I know mm. have gone down there and been – beneficially treated um, for non-C diff
0: related. For treatment. an example, what would the So like person go down there
1: um for? like um, IBS like symptoms, irritable bowel syndrome. Which right? would be
0: a mix between bloating, constipation, right. diarrhea. Yeah. Anything irritable.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, functional issues. So it can be people who, um, in, in this particular case that I'm, I'm referring to, someone who actually was diagnosed with Crohn's disease as a child, but managed through medications, but then developed later in hmm. life SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, and all the IBS symptoms that could not be managed. With medication. So in yeah. individual, they tried Zyfaxin and, okay. Yeah. And it was just uh, huge for someone who travels a lot and, you know, huge it problem. was huge problem. And we sequenced his microbiome and found that um, he had, because he'd been on sort of a series of antibiotics, mm. steroids, antibiotics, decimated his microbiome. And I kind of made a sort of casual comment to him. Hey, you'd be a perfect, if only we could do it in the U.S., but you'd be a perfect candidate for a fecal transplant. But you don't have C. diff. He didn't have C. diff in his mm. microbiome. And he just kind of latched on to that. And he searched high and low, searched for clinical trials in Europe, searched around. And nothing he was eligible for in the U.S. nor Europe and then found clinic a clinic in Australia, who I know well, um, who you go, it's a three-week process and you go and it's a pretty intensive process. And he went and he did it and it was like a new person. Wow. And we sequenced the microbiome thereafter. They had four donors and he his microbiome exceeded the diversity of the donors. And That's incredible. Yeah. How long does that last? So it lasted for, well, it lasted until he, um, Uh, traveled and picked up an E. coli and had to go on
0: antibiotics. He probably was thinking, God, this is the worst case scenario now. Okay. So then did he do it again? He did it again. Okay. And he's actually done
1: it three times because in between he's had some infection that has come up that has altered. From
0: his uh, Crohn's or just. From
1: uh, environmental picking up a a pathogen.
0: Do some people have a lower robust gut microbiome just at birth. It's a great question. Um, probably, yeah. It's like, why would this guy have to go back multiple? I mean, because that's probably not available for the majority of people. Yeah. Um, you know, and you would think once you repopulate the gut microbiome, yeah, uh, that he would just be able to mitigate yeah. any kind of right. other bug thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just like many as basketball. to why. Is unable to maintain it's, that. Uh,
1: yeah, it's possible that he was just, you know, those communities were there mm. populating, but they weren't maybe as robust as they they could have been. I mean, you take, you take these transplants and you still have to support them, right? And I think that's an aspect that people are looking into, but we need more research into the dietary support post-fecal transplant. You know, how do you Encourage those bugs to grow, and it's probably a mix of fibers and diet, you know, um,
0: diversity of the diet. And that's often not talked about, Mm. um, even for C. diff. So, and uh, that's probably again that division between the nutritional scientists and the gut microbiome experts uh, or the, uh, you know, microbiology individuals. Yeah. And
1: that's where, yeah, we need more people talking, Mm -hmm. you know. The interface between the two. Yes, exactly.
0: What would if you were to think about? Um, well, I, I think that we should probably take a moment to talk about sequencing. Mm-hmm. That is something that probably people don't think about in terms of how can we identify what is actually in the gut, the yeah. gut microbiome. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, and and sequence. You know, when we refer to sequencing, it's the the tool, the the technology we use for identifying identifying these bacteria. Um, you know, that it is really the microbiome field emerged from infectious diseases and, and kind of microbiology because of sequ- this, the, the invention of sequencing um, the DNA of, 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 of these bacteria. Um, and we discovered that you don't have to grow them in order to see them. Um, you can actually take a stool sample or a soil sample or an ocean sam- a sample, a skin swab, whatever, and essentially run it through a machine and it will tell you who is in that sample, what bugs are in that sample. And you couldn't do that before
0: 2007, like when I got into the field. That's very new science. Yeah,
1: it's it's, new, but it's been around for the human genome for right. a long time. But
0: for the gut, for for the microbiome, gut microbiome, microbiome, that guy oh. definitely won the Nobel Prize. Yes,
1: that was, <laughs> I, I mean, he was, he's, he, yeah, he um, unfortunately has pa- passed away several years ago, but um, that was probably the biggest, you know, um, thing for, for the field. And um, so sequencing now is the bread and butter for microbiome research. And usually it's what we use when we want to pilot an idea. And we want to say, okay, we want to give this diet versus that diet or whatever the treatment group is, and we want to see who's changed. We'll sequence, and then we look for changes, and then we decide where to go from there. Um, and then, you know, at-home testing kits that are
0: everywhere. Let's talk about it. All of the at-home and I, the the major goal, right, is that people are trying to understand their gut microbiome. Yeah. Which, how many bugs is that? Mm. I mean, uh, like 100 like, uh, trillion okay. bugs in your diet. And in a gut microbiome test, the best that we are possibly looking at is what, maybe 100?
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends on the technology they use and why it's so challenging for people you know, like your listeners and people out there who are interested in this there's probably 50 different companies selling microbiome testing kits for at home, let's say at home use. Um, and they all use different technologies that all generate different types of data. Um, some are better than others, but they all, none of them anymore just say, we're just gonna sequence your microbiome and tell you what's there. The vast majority sequence your microbiome and then tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. And they charge you a lot of money for that. Mm. The telling you what to do part is so
0: tenuous and based on very little data. Meaning someone will send in a gut microbiome test and they'll say, okay, well, you should eliminate eggs. Yeah. And they're making a broad, generalized recommendation based on, I mean, I'm sure that there's some bacteria that we know are beneficial and some bacteria that uh, we know are harmful, like with C, C. diff, but there's so many different positive bacteria that there's, you know, in any one family, there's right. a zillion.
1: Yeah. And what's beneficial or harmful in one person may not right. be for the next so person. This is very difficult and very challenging. Yeah, it's it's huge. And and I think, you know, when people do these tests and they get that information back and they follow it, expect, you know, it, but it's not personalized to them yeah very rarely and be- mainly because if you look into the literature I couldn't tell you hmm. and I've been doing this for 15 years and I could not tell you if you have you're missing a bug or that bug is overgrown exactly what food to eat I can give you hmm. suggestions but I could not tell you definitively how to have to correct that um, so the the, the the kits are great in, in many ways for getting the information about your composition of your gut microbiota and it's good I think to have it when you're healthy before I think you know? that's
0: actually a great idea. Um, and then the other part that we talked about before we started recording is that there's secretary IgA and calprotectin and zonulin, even if those, depending on why we're looking at we can still track it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and so we need markers like that that you can sort of pair with with maybe gut microbiome changes exactly so you can track it. And so you're healthy now, you have your baseline levels, and then maybe one day you You have to go on antibiotics because you picked up something, and you want to know if your gut microbiome has recovered, right? You want to know how close does it look to where you started two months ago or whenever you tested. That's important data, I think, to have um, for everybody. So the kits, while there are some issues with them, having some information at a baseline, in my opinion, is better than nothing.
0: The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.